Hello, my name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, we're very pleased today to partner with YASDA uh, to organize the Canadian briefing on the um, anniversary of the Yazidi genocide. Um, many of you know uh, the Yazidis are a minority group in the Middle East, particularly in, in Iraq, and they suffered enormous violence at the hands of ISIS, Daesh. Um, Canada played a leadership role in helping defeat ISIS Daesh. Uh, we also had quite a few Yazidi refugees resettled to Canada and we're grappling with the issue of how to bring ISIS fighters, Canadian ISIS fighters, to bring them, hold them to account for the atrocity crimes they committed. So this is a very important issue um, that I'm very glad today to be working with Yazda uh, um, to discuss what's happening on the ground and, and what we can do to bring these people to justice. So today we have four very uh, amazing speakers um, all with different backgrounds of things to say. Um, our first speaker is Ahmed Shahid. Ahmed is a UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion uh, or Belief. Ahmed, thank you for joining us. Our second speaker is Natia Nazruzov. She works for Yazda. Uh, Natia uh, will speak on the current status of efforts to bring ISIS fighters to justice for the genocide of the Yazidi people. Uh, followed by Natia, we have Hala Safil, uh, Hala is a Yazidi survivor from the Yazidi Survivor Network. Hala is a Yazidi activist and survivor based in Iraq. She will deliver testimony today and discuss the situation affecting the Yazidi community today. And uh, last but not least, we have the great pleasure to have Nicolette Waldman join us today. And Nicolette works for Amnesty International, and she will speak on a recently released report for Amnesty International centering the challenge and risk faced by Yazidi child survivors of ISIS captivity. So we have uh, three very um, important voices joining us here, speaking to the Canadian community. And I would like now to ask um, Ahmed to take the floor and um, give us his opening comments. Ahmed, the floor is yours. Thank you, Kyle. Good morning, good afternoon, honorable senators, honorable members, and other participants. Thank you, Yazda and Mix for inviting me to this important briefing today. And I'm delighted to meet the chair and the co-panelists at this briefing. The systematic violence against Yazidis in Syria and Iraq from August 2014 was determined by the Independent International Commission of Inquiry on the Syrian Arab Republic as amounting to genocide and multiple crimes against humanity and war crimes against Yazidis. These are the most serious crimes that humans can commit and should therefore be treated with the utmost of concern. Six years down the track, although some efforts are being made to address these issues, there are many serious concerns, unresolved issues, and continuing and escalating violations. In 2017, an investigative team was established in order to collect evidence of ISIS crimes in Iraq, and last year began exhibiting the 202 plus graves that are known. Another mass grave containing 600 bodies was uncovered just last month. Yet for many of the victims of the genocide, there has been no justice. Iraq is not a member of the International Criminal Court and remains reluctant to have international judges involved in the trials against ISIS members. There have been some trials of ISIS fighters in countries including Germany this year, but these are exceptional. The Iraqi government could enter into a treaty with the UN or there could be international tribunal to which the uh, Iraqis could agree to transfer that was responsible for these crimes, but this has not come to pass. 
India, since as many as 6,000 women and girls as young as nine were sold into slavery, raped and forced into marriage, an estimated three to 4,000 Yazidis, including women and children, are missing or still under ISIS control. Women forced to marry ISIS fighters and children sold into slavery are still struggling with psychological wounds, including post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of their experiences. I, I look forward to hearing from our colleague from Amnesty International talk more about this today. The Dutch government has partnered with Yazda to provide a range of services, including psychosocial, legal, medical, and employment support to Yazidi survivors of sexual and gender-based violence in Tahok province in Kurdistan. Under the initiative, Pathways for Yazidi Refugees Resettlement outside of Iraq and Syria in countries including Canada and Germany were enabled first through UNHCR in 2014-15, and a further reception program for Yazidis from Iraq was announced by Germany last year, as the numbers of Yazidis accepted for asylum in the country had been dropping, as the case in other countries as well. A quarter million Yazidis remain displaced as of today. Although more than half of those displaced have reportedly returned to northern Iraq, many of those displaced fear returning to their ancestral lands due to the fear of the lack of protection from further persecution and violence. Some of the same people who aided in their targeting during the genocide remain in these lands, making reintegration difficult. Stigma remains for those returning who are additionally faced with having to rebuild their lives with little assistance. In situations of displacement, women and girls are most exposed to adversity, including heightened risk of gender-based violence and are most vulnerable to numerous challenges, including extreme poverty and lack of access to basic infrastructure and services. In addition to the significant barriers that remain in securing adequate housing and amenities for those wishing to return, violence and land grabbing in Iraq has escalated again in the second half of last year, despite the declared victory over ISIS. In Syria, the Independent Commission has reported Yazidi women and children having to flee again from renewed violence. For example, in October last year, that involved the Syrian National Army fighters. During the current COVID-19 pandemic, ISIS militants have been exploiting the diversion of the government's attention and resources to, -attack, to, to again attack civilians, including Yazidis and other religious groups and their infrastructure and to grab land. Many faith-based communities in Northern Iraq rely on the land to feed themselves, a resource particularly important during the current pandemic. There is much to do at the national, international level, and I encourage all to keep pressing for, ensuring that the stigmatizing of and misperception of Yazidis are addressed amongst the new generations through the education system is important. Iraq's public school curriculum does not recognize Yazidi history or culture, which has help fuel the spread of misinformation and slander about Yazidis. Initiatives such as the virtual reality and immersive exhibition experience, Nobody's Listening, helps bring to life the lived reality of for Yazidis through a new medium that helps to pay tribute to survivors and give a space where they can be heard. Finally, I also welcome EDMA, the Yazidi Survivors Network, as an important initiative for supporting and empowering survivors of genocide. It's also crucial for enabling survivors to work together, keeping the pressure on international bodies and states to bring the perpetrators to the, of genocide to justice, prevent future genocides, and assist in the rebuilding of safe communities with the necessary infrastructure and services to those who wish to return. 
Thank you for inviting me to join this briefing. Thank you, Ahmed, for the comprehensive uh, overview of, of the situation and what the UN is doing to try to bring uh, justice to the Yazidis. I would now like to ask uh, Natya Navruzov to uh, now take the floor and deliver her opening comments. Natya. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I really warmly wanted to thank the, the Memorial Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies to co-host this important event with YASDA to commemorate the sixth anniversary of the Yazidi genocide. Uh, as Kyle just said, my name is Natya Navruzov and I'm an international lawyer. I'm currently heading YASDA's documentation project in Iraq. Uh, I know that I have a limited time and I have divided my uh, presentation uh, in three parts. Um, the first uh, question that I really want to start by addressing is who are uh, the Yazidis? Uh, so most of us didn't know, the, most of you didn't know the Yazidis before uh, the August attacks in 2014. I personally was a student when the genocide happened and I remember that the first question asked by the international community, asked by governments, medias, was who are the Yazidis? As a Yazidi myself, uh, it made me, I was used to that question actually because I um, heard it a lot from my friends, from, from my professors. But at that precise moment, it, it made me very, very angry because uh, I really thought it's it's not the moment to ask who are the Yazidis, but it's, it's very urgent to, to help them because uh, they are uh, going through a genocide at this very precise uh, moment. With time, I understood that uh, it's our duty as, as Yazidis and also non-Yazidis to raise awareness about this community, which was really unknown before uh, the, the recent genocide. So I always take a couple of seconds uh, to explain uh, who the Yazidis are bef before uh, presenting uh, uh, anything. So uh, Kyle already mentioned briefly, so the Yazidis are ethno-religious group uh, that is over 6,000 years old and had, has roots in ancient Mesopotamian religions. The Yazidis believe in one God called Khedeh and seven angels, including the archangel Tausimalek. Yazidi religious celebrations are really intertwined with changes of the season and, and linked to the nature. The holiest place for the Yazidis is Lalish Temple in Iraq. And currently we believe that there are around 1.5 million Yazidis around the world. Uh, Sinjar, of course, in Iraq being their homeland, but also with diasporas in Turkey, Armenia, Georgia, France, Australia, and of course, Canada. So why are the Yazidis scattered all around the, the globe? So this is really linked to the history of, of the Yazidis. Um, the, the genocide that uh, ISIS committed is, a, is one of the, the many genocides that the Yazidis suffered from throughout their history. According to the Yazidi history, uh, Yazidis suffered 73 massacres called Firmans by the Yazidis before the one committed uh, by uh, ISIS. For instance, we know that many Yazidis died uh, during the Armenian genocide, but there's no, not a lot of documentation that was made uh, about this. Um, so when ISIS attacked um, uh, the Yazidis, the genocidal ideology was already uh, present and ISIS had already studied the Yazidi, knew the Yazidis and the attacks were uh, carefully planned. So what happened exactly uh, on the 3rd of August? Uh, I, uh, Sinjar is um, divided by, by a mountain and you have um, Yazidi villages on the north and south, south of Sinjar mountain. 
When ISIS came, they came mainly from Mosul that, that they had uh, already taken in June 2014 and attacked first the south side of Sinjar Mountain, so the villages on the south side. In, in a couple of hours, they were able uh, to uh, murder men, uh, enslave women and children, and then move to the north side. So statistically, uh, the people on the north side uh, had more time to flee and were able to flee to Turkey, Syria, uh, Kurdistan. Um, we believe that around 10,000 Yazidis were killed and enslaved in, in these first days of the attacks. 100% of the Yazidis from Sinjar were displaced, so around 450,000 people. There was a massive property destruction and also 68 Yazidi temples and cultural sites were destroyed by ISIS. So what is the situation of the Yazidis now, six years after? So as, as mentioned, around 2,900 Yazidis are today missing. Sinjar is, is full of mass graves. Uh, we have ourselves documented over 70 mass graves and uh, 100, only 100 Yazidis have returned uh, to their areas. 250,000 Yazidis still live in IDP camps, including uh, my colleague Hala, who will, who will speak to you uh, after me. And around 100,000 Yazidis have left Iraq, uh, we believe for good, to uh, resettle to Germany, France, Australia, and Canada. So in, it's in this con context of August 2014 that Yazda was created. Yazda was created by uh, Yazidis from the diaspora, mainly in the US, who basically went to the White House and asked them to launch airstrikes on, on, on ISIS because they had encircled Yazidis who were trapped on Sinjar Mountain without any water, without any food, uh, without basically uh, no options left. Uh, the two options were going down off the mountain and, and being captured by ISIS or stay on the mountain and basically uh, die because of, of uh, no water and, and food. The U.S. government accepted, and uh, we know that uh, airstrikes opened a safe corridor and, and Yazidis were able to escape. But of course, the suffering was uh, not finished and um, there was a big humanitarian crisis. So these same people from the Yazidi diaspora decided to provide humanitarian aid to the Yazidis and founded Yazda. Today, Yazda is, is, is a big uh, organization registered in Iraq, of course, in the U.S., in the U.K., Germany, Sweden, and also Australia. We have offices in Baghdad, Bashika, Duhok, Sinjar uh, in Iraq, and we have over 70 employees, hundreds of volunteers around the world that I really want to thank for, for all their support. And we really provide uh, long-term humanitarian help. We try to have a holistic approach, meaning that we really try to help survivors in the different fields of their lives. So we provide them with case management support, especially for survivors who come back from captivity, we make sure to take them to the doctors. We make sure that they are able to do their documentation again, because when fleeing ISIS, of course, they were not able to keep their IDs. We also have livelihood projects. We help uh, survivors to set up businesses if they want to, education projects in Sinjar, and also a mobile medical unit, uh, which is going from village to village in, in, in Sinjar to provide uh, medical assistance to people who are not able to go to the hospitals, uh, who, ha who have simply um, no money uh, to do so. So this is a, a big, a quick overview about what, how Yazda was created and which context and what Yazda is doing. I really wanna uh, take the remaining time to focus on one precise project that Yazda is carrying out, which is the documentation project. And this is really the project I'm currently heading. 
So the documentation project aims to gather um, evidence on the crimes that were committed by ISIS against the Yazidis since August 2014. So how did this project start and when? So shortly after the Sinjar attacks in August 2014, Yazidi survivors started to come back from captivity. Some of them were already uh, able to come back around September, October of that same year. When they came back, uh, one of the first desires that they had was to tell their stories because what had happened to them was so traumatizing and, and so unbelievable that they really wanted to, to tell their stories. As I mentioned before, Yazidis went through 74 uh, genocides, uh, 73 in, with the one committed by ISIS 74, and it's almost impossible to find any documentation of what has happened. Uh, to Yazidis previously. Uh, I myself know that my ancestors uh, were killed uh, by the Ottoman Empire throughout uh, previous genocides, but I, I have no idea of what has happened exactly. So Yazda wanted to avoid the situation, and this documentation project started really as a cultural documentation project. So the idea was to build a historical archive, document the stories of the survivors so that the voices could be preserved and, and heard when the moment was right. With time, we turned this project also to an advocacy project because many survivors we, uh, we are working with are, are really ready to take a, another step further and, and speak to the international community directly. And, and Hala is, is one of these survivors. She will speak to you very soon. A bit further in this project, we realized that the information we were gathering could also be used in courtrooms. So the information survivors have had uh, is, is so valuable and is so precise that we could uh, we could definitely use them to build legal cases. And specifically, we could use them to avoid a situation where ISIS members are only prosecuted for membership uh, to a terrorism group and, and also are prosecuted for international crimes, so genocide, uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes committed against the Yazidis. So, so how do we do that? First, uh, the, the, the main component of this project is to listen to survivors. So we collect their testimonies when they come back from captivity. We give them some space. As I said, we have other projects that are there to uh, help them with their basic needs. And, and once they're ready, and if they wish so, they can speak to us, to us about their stories. We record that story and then uh, we, we analyze it and we see how to provide uh, it to war crime units, etc. We have collected now uh, over 1,800 ISIS survivors' testimonies. And I would say the main, main strength of Yasta is that people really trust us. People really trust us because we have been there from the beginning and also because we keep information confidential when survivors wish so. Another big part of the documentation work is to document the crime scenes. So as I mentioned before, Sinjar is full of mass graves. We have ourselves documented over 70 mass graves. We have published two reports on this, one in 2016 and one in 2018. Uh, we also have documented the destruction of, of Yazidi cultural heritage. So as I mentioned before, ISIS destroyed 68 Yazidi temples and cultural sites, and we were able to document 24 of them. The other ones were not accessible, but we hope that we can do that in the future. We also collect information on open sources. As you know, ISIS left a lot of trace on, on internet through propaganda, videos, pictures, etc., but also its members bragging online about the crimes they have committed, especially against Yazidis, buying, selling women, etc. 
So once all this information is collected, wh what do we do with that? I, I have already briefly touched, uh, touched to it. So the, the first uh, recipient of our information currently is UNITAD. Uh, so as previously mentioned, it's the UN investigative team that was created by UN Security Resolution 2379 and is currently operating in, in Iraq. So we have concluded an MOU with UNITAD and we share uh, regular information with them. The second recipient of our information are uh, national war crime units and, and prosecutor's offices. And um, we have established, especially through our legal counsel, which is uh, Ms. Amal Clooney, a really good relationship with, with many of these war crime units. So uh, last point, are we successful in, in what we're doing? So I would say yes and no. Uh, of course, you might be aware that uh, some uh, cases have started, uh, especially in Germany. And the first one that I wanted to mention is the Jennifer W case, which is ongoing in Munich. And that has started uh, last year in, in March. So just to give you a, a brief background about this case, it's, it's about um, a German national who joined ISIS and married an Iraqi ISIS member in Syria and then moved to Iraq with him. While they were living in Iraq under ISIS occupation, they uh, had in their household uh, a Yazidi mother and her little child, a Yazidi girl who was five years old. And one day, um, Jennifer W's husband chained the little Yazidi girl under the sun for hours, which led to her death. And Jennifer didn't uh, do anything to prevent that. So when ISIS started to lose its territory, Jennifer uh, tried to return to Germany and was arrested. And at that time, um, the German authorities didn't have much information about her, so had to let her walk, but she was under surveillance. She committed some mistakes and, and at some point she was arrested. And the German authorities knew that she had these two Yazidi slaves in her household, but they didn't have any idea about their identity, about uh, the whereabouts of the mother, because the little girl, as I mentioned, uh, had died. So when we were made aware of, of this case, our documentation project, as I mentioned, we have uh, here the stories of over 1,800 Yazidi uh, survivors. Our documentation project was able to identify the mother of this little girl and basically to put her in touch with the German authorities, with our legal counsel, Amal Clooney, and help her to join the proceeding in, in Germany, which she agreed to do. And as I said, the, the case is still ongoing. Another case I, I, I really quickly wanted to mention, and which is really important because it's it, it's the first case um, that is um, prosecuting prosecuting an ISIS member for genocide committed against the Yazidis. It's the Taha uh, AG case, and it is linked to the Jennifer W case because Taha AG was uh, the husband of of Jennifer, so he is the one who chained that little girl. Uh, under the sun, which which led to her death. So he was also arrested uh, and he is also currently under prosecution uh, in Frankfurt this time. And the, the, the mother again joined the proceeding and is represented by, by Ms. Amal Clooney. There are a couple of other cases in, in Germany, but I, 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 I will keep that for the follow-up questions, I, I would say. And then there are some invest, ongoing investigations in France that I quickly wanted to mention. One is the Lafarge case, uh, one is the Sabri uh, Acid uh, investigation. So Sabri Acid is a French national who 
uh, committed crimes against Yazidis and who is now investigated for crimes against humanity and genocide. And again, Yazda was able to identify one of the victims of, of this person. I don't know if, if you have a song in the, in the news, but two, four days ago, um, it was announced that uh, Germany and France were uh, opening investigations against, um, so a, a German national in German, so a, a woman called Nurten J, who is also accused of being involved in crimes against Yazidis, and in France against Nabil J, who is also accused of genocide and crimes against humanity against the Yazidis. So just to summarize these cases, we have currently um, zero convictions, uh, four ongoing trials, three against German ISIS female members, one against an Iraqi ISIS member, and a couple of investigation. On the other hand, we know that around 40,000 foreign fighters from 110 countries have traveled to, to Syria and joined ISIS. Many of them were from Western countries, some from, from Canada. And around 800 foreign fighters are currently detained by the SDF, so Syrian Democratic Forces in Northeast Syria, which keeps calling the international community to, to help them in this unbearable situation because they are simply not able to keep these ISIS fighters for too long. And, and as mentioned with the COVID situation, things get, get really, really worse. So I, I, I will just wrap up, uh, and, and I know that I, I, I'm a bit over time. Um, from, from our perspective, we understand that it, it's very difficult uh, to, to deal with the ISIS situation, especially, especially with the returnees. But we also believe that ISIS is a global problem. It's not just an Iraqi and a Syrian one. We therefore have to find a global solution for prosecution. Prosecuting an ISIS member is, is not easy, but it's not impossible. And Yazda has shown it in the German cases by providing the evidence that the German authorities were missing simply because they were not able to, to go to Iraq to investigate. I think that we owe the Yazidi community to the survivors, to Hala, who will be speaking after me, and to the humanity to at least try to find the evidence. I hope that I give you a little bit of hope by showing that evidence is actually collected by local NGOs such as Yazda and can be used. I want to finish with the quote of a Yazidi survivor who was brave enough to share her story with us. And I hope that it will make us a little, a little bit more brave too. So this survivor told us, thousands of Islamic State members were captured and thousands of survivors can testify against them. Yet not much is being done to hold them accountable for the crimes they have committed against us. Even if it hurts me, even if, I, even if I lose a piece of my soul, every time I tell what has happened to me, I'm ready to repeat my story to the world over and over until justice will be served. Thank you. Thank, <clears throat> Thank you very much, Anatia. That was uh, important work that you're doing and, and helping prosecute people as far away as Germany in France, and and what thing that 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 jumped out at me that the numbers you said forty thousand foreign fighters traveled to Iraq. It's not saying the locals that participated, but forty thousand foreign fighters, and there have been four trials and zero convictions to date. And that's that's an um, abysmal um, record. So hopefully we can improve on that. Um, I would now like to uh, invite uh, Hala Safel from the Yazidi Survivors Network. And she will also be joined by uh, Vianne Darwish, who is her translator. So we're going to ask both of you, we're going to put you up on the screen now, and we'll ask um, you, Hala, um, to uh, 
tell us um, a bit about um, your experiences and the work that you're doing now. أنا أمين هو سؤالي سكن سر تجارب داقت كاريتس بكيش مارب بيدي شكرا لكم لمنحي هذه الفرصة لكي أتحدث عن محناة الأقليات الأيتيدية ولي فخرين انضم معكم هنا Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to uh, to speak about the sufferings of the Yazidi minority, and it's an honor for me to join you here. وأقول ما لدي بما أن الوقت قصير ولا يمكنني قول الكثير فسأقول ما لدي بإختصار. So I will say what I have to say uh, since I have no much time. So I will say uh, I will say it briefly. أنا كناجة أيزيدية قضيت ثلاث سنوات من عمري تحت أسر تنظيم داعش. سنوات لم تكن فيها شيء يدعو إلى الحياة. I am as a Yazidi survivor. I have spent. Three years from my life in ISIS captivity, years that there was nothing called for life in. بل كل لحظة فيها كانت عادل الموت ألف مرة. And every moment in that um, in those years were equal to the death thousand times. حيث تعرضنا لما لا يقبل الضمير أصبحنا ضحايا في لحظات الزمن وتعرضنا على جرائم منذ لها جبين الإنسانية We were subjected to um, what is unaccepted by any soul We, were, uh, we became survivors in, uh, in seconds of time We were subjected to crimes that are uh, out of the humanity لا لا توجد عائلة واحدة من مناطقنا سلمت من شر هذه الإبادة. There is no even like a single family from our areas where uh, survived from the evil of this genocide. لا زال مصير أكثر من 2800 من النساء والأطفال مجهولة. There are still more than um, the destiny or the faith, uh, more than 2,800 uh, people from uh, women and children uh, are missed. أكثر من 80% من شعبنا لا زال يتذوق مرارة النزوح. ومناطقنا المدمرة غير آمنة أصبحت للأسف صاحات للزراعات المختلفة. And more than 80% from our people are still testing the beater of the displacement. Our, our original places are uh, the ones who are damaged and insecure becomes unfortunately a stage for the various uh, conflicts. I am as a survivor, and with me, hundreds of uh, of those who uh, returned back. We are 
suffering, uh, we are suffering from two things. من غياب الاهتمام الحكومي والمنظمات من خلال عدم وجود دعم ولا برامج إعادة تأهيل. We are the first thing we are suffering from the neglecting that we face from the government or the the NGOs, such as like there is no support, enough support for the survivors, as well as there is no rehabilitation programs for them. كذلك الأمر الآخر وهو لا زال هناك الآلاف من المفقودين بحاجة إلى البحث عنهم وإنقاذهم. The other thing is there are still thousands of missed people. They are in need to to search for them and to rescue them. إنها الذكرى الثالثة للإبادة الجماعية الأيدية. إلا أنها لا زال المجتمع الدولي لم يعترف بهذه الإبادة الجماعية اعترافا دوليا وأمميا. It has been the sixth memory of the Yazidi genocide and still the international community didn't recognize didn't recognize it as a genocide and I mean like didn't recognize it internationally. As a genocide. وهنا أود أن أذكركم على أمر آخر، وهم وهو رجوع قسم من العوائل إلى سنجان في الفترة الحالية. And here I would like to remind you about something important else, which is some people or or some families they are returning to Sinjar currently. وأن سبب الرجوع هو بحكم أن أغلبية منهم منتسبين ضمن صفوف القوات الأمنية العراقية. And the reason behind their returning is those families, some members of those families, they are members of the the Iraqi military forces. وإن بقى عوائلهم في المخيمات بات مشكلة صعبة. والذي يعودون لا يع لا يعودون لأن يتوفر الأمن والأمان والخدمات بل يعودون لكي لا يقطع رواتبهم. So their families who are staying in camps in in IDP camps in Kurdistan it becomes like a like a problem for them. So they are returning back not not because they want to return back but because the security and safety uh, and the other life condition services is available, but they are returning because they don't want to lose their salaries and income so, uh, resources. لأن يصعب عليهم الدخول إلى كردستان أو بالأحر أنهم ينامون على الأرصفة ليالي. So. Uh, it's so difficult for them to to come to Kurdistan, and when they they try to come, they are sleeping like nights and nights in in, in the uh, roads and streets. وبعد ذلك يعودون إلى شنجاد 
دون دخولهم إلى كردستان فإنهم يضطرون العودة إلى مسكنهم الأسلي and and after spending uh, like uh, nights in the in the roads they are returning to uh, to shingal without entering kurdistan that's why they are like um, obligated to return to their um, original place uh, Regarding the the difficult uh, the difficulty of the life conditions services there, the availability availability of the um, providing the life condition services there and also in the IDP camps here. وكذلك في المخيمات نظرا لظروف كورونا. And uh, also in the camps. Re- regarding COVID-19 situations. أخيراً وليس آخراً. أشكر جميع الدول التي ساعدوا الأيزيدين وخاصاً ألمانيا وأستراليا وكندا. الذين ساعدوا الناجين. Last but not least, I would like to thank all the countries who helped the Yazidis, especially the survivors, especially Germany, Australia, and Canada. الذين ساعدوا الناجين واستقبلهم في بلدهم ونتأمل منهم المزيد من الدعم للأيزيدين في العراق. Those countries who opened their doors uh, for the survivors and um, uh, received them uh, in their countries. Uh, so I'm thanking them. And uh, I'm hoping from them, the more, uh, I hope like they support the Yazidis people in Iraq more. And here I I would like to give my message. It has been six years. مضت ست سنوات ألا يكفي هذا الإهمال تجاه المفقودين الأيزيدين بشكل عام والناجين والناجيات بشكل خاص إلى متى سنبقى مقيدين للإيادة It has been six years and it is not the time to end up this neglecting towards the Yazidi component Generally, and the survivors and the missed people, especially, until when we will stay like this, um, uh, doing nothing. يعني إلى متى سنبقى مقيدين الأيادي؟ وشكراً يعني على الاستماع. So until when we will stay uh, like this, uh, doing nothing and. Thank you so much for uh, listening to me, for for your hearing. Thank you for for joining us. Um, um, I know uh, your testimony is so important for Canadians. Um, saying your testimony is very important for Canadians uh, to hear about. And I have many comments here saying thank you for your courage for speaking up.
as a survivor and, and an activist. Um, we hope that people listening will will get more engaged and make sure the Canadian government is gets further support to the ZD community and the work that you're doing. I would now uh, like to ask Nicolette of Amnesty International to take the floor and talk about uh, the recent report. Nicolette? Great. Uh, thank you so much, Kyle. Um, Thank you, Migs. Thank you, Yazda, and um, and the co-panelists, um, and all of you who are listening today. So today, I wanted to share some of the key findings from an Amnesty report that was released yesterday, uh, which focuses on Yazidi child survivors of ISIS captivity. So I'll first discuss how we carried out the research, and then I'll go into some of the key findings. So in terms of the methodology for this report, we carried out the research between January and July of this year. And in that time, we interviewed 29 Yazidi survivors who were taken captive by ISIS's children, 25 family members who care for these child survivors, and then 69 other individuals, including staff members of NGOs, government officials, UN officials, doctors, psychologists, psychotherapists, journalists, and other experts. So in terms of the findings, um, I'll talk about two groups of, of findings today. First, related to the challenges faced by Yazidi child survivors, and then related to challenges faced by Yazidi women who gave birth to children as a result of sexual violence. So to start out with on the child survivors, when ISIS attacked the Yazidi community in 2014, they killed or abducted thousands of children. And since 2014, hundreds of these children have returned back to their families, but unfortunately their returns have not marked the end of their suffering. Um, instead, what we found is that these children are facing massive challenges. Um, the challenges I want to go through today are in four main areas, physical health, mental health, language, and education. So first in terms of physical health, as a result of starvation, torture, sexual violence, primarily for girls, and being forced to endure or participate in armed conflict, many child survivors now have long-term injuries, conditions, um, or physical disabilities. So girl survivors of sexual violence by ISIS fighters, uh, which is many, many, as it was a policy of ISIS um, to subject any girl over the age of nine uh, to sexual enslavement, um, these girl survivors have unique health issues. They include, um, just some of them are traumatic fistulas, scarring, and then difficulty uh, conceiving or carrying a child to, to term. Boys who were forced to fight by ISIS, again, this is um, the vast majority of the boys who were abducted, um, were recruited into ISIS and, and sent to institutes for indoctrination and then into the ranks of ISIS at the age of seven. Um, these boy survivors are especially likely to suffer from serious health conditions or physical disabilities, such as lost arms or legs um, that, uh, that they incurred during the fighting. So second, in terms of mental health, these child survivors are really facing a mental health crisis. Um, almost every caregiver who we interviewed said that the mental health of the child survivor they looked after had been affected by their time in captivity in most cases, very severely. Um, of course, each child's situation is unique, 
but mental health experts that we interviewed have detected some patterns and they find that the most common conditions experienced by UZD child survivors are PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress, anxiety and depression. And some of the most common symptoms that these child survivors exhibit are aggression, hyperactivity, flashbacks, withdrawal from social situations, recurrent nightmares and severe mood swings. Um, third, in terms of language barriers, many child survivors experience significant language barriers upon return and that can prevent them from reintegrating into their families and community. Um, some children manage to maintain fluency in Kurmanji dialect of the Kurdish language, but others are unable to speak or even understand Kurmanji Kurdish when they return. They primarily speak Arabic, and this can mean that families can't even um, speak with each other uh, or understand each other, which poses a very serious barrier to these children um, reintegrating into their families and community. Um, finally, in terms of access to education, Yazidi child survivors face particular challenges in accessing education as they have almost always missed one or more years of schooling during captivity. Um, and government and national, um, the, the national authorities, NGOs and international organizations have set up some programs uh, for accelerated learning to get these children back into school. But what we found was that many child survivors are not registered in these programs, either because they don't know they exist or because they can only be accessed by dealing with extremely burdensome levels of bureaucracy involving extensive paperwork and then needing to approach multiple government agencies. So to, to sum up on, on what the child survivors are, are facing, um, there have been efforts and organizations like Yazdar is one of the organizations doing amazing work with the resources they have, but Every humanitarian actor we interviewed for this report told us that the current programming is nowhere close to meeting the needs of these child survivors, which are so overwhelming and so urgent. Um, so secondly, women uh, on women with children born of sexual violence during captivity. Um, just as some background, as a result of ISIS's policy of systematic rape and sexual enslavement for Yazidi women and young women and girls, these uh, Yazidis gave birth to hundreds of children during their captivity. And due to religious, societal, and legal pressures, these children have largely been denied a place within the Yazidi community. Now, I just wanted to touch on the legal pressures. The current Iraqi legal framework um, makes it even more difficult for the Yazidi community to accept these children because it requires any child born of a Muslim uh, or an unknown father to be registered as Muslim. Um, this requirement could be a violation, very likely is a violation of Iraq's obligations under international law to protect identity and the freedom of religion, as well as a violation of these children's right to enjoy their own culture and practice their own religion because they're actually being forced to be uh, registered as a religion that um, is not practiced by their mother. And we're arguing that this legal framework should be amended. There should be exceptions made for the case of, of Yazidi mothers and, and the, for these children. Um, we actually received a re response to our um, report from the Kurdish regional government. And they said that their efforts to amend this legal framework are underway. And we think those efforts must be urgently supported. So because of these religious, legal and um, societal pressures, 
this leads to women who give birth to children as a result of sexual violence being forced to choose between keeping their children but giving up their families and community or keeping their children um, or reuniting with their families and community. Um, or sorry, giving up their children, but reuniting with their childrens and family. Um, women have responded to this situation in, in different ways. Some have willingly separated from their children. Others have remained in IDP or, or uh, camps for displaced people or for or refugee camps, or even with their ISIS captors to avoid being separated from their children. And we found that still others have been separated from their children against their will. Um, and so this is something I wanted to go into, this forced separation, uh, because this is, to our knowledge, something new um, that, that, uh, that uh, has not been covered so far. Um, and we found in the course of our research that Yazidi women have been um, very often misled into um, and very strongly pressured into leaving their children born of sexual violence behind. These women are also being falsely assured that they can reunite uh, with them at a later stage. So all of the women who we interviewed who were forcibly separated from their children said they did not have access to their children or any way to receive news about them. They also said they were unable to speak with their families or community about their desire to reunite with their children due to fears for their own safety. And every woman we interviewed um, who had been separated from her child or children born of sexual violence pleaded for the national authorities and international community to act with urgency as they found their situations completely unbearable. And I just wanted to, to emphasize that point that for these women, really it's a it's a day-to-day -day situation. They're not, um, we're not talking about months they can wait or years, but for them, the agony they're facing um, really uh, is, is a matter of survival each day. Um, and out of the women we interviewed, uh, I think, uh, uh, there was the the majority of them had attempted to commit suicide either once or multiple times. Um, so in terms of our recommendations, finally, we're calling on the national authorities and international community to provide substantial funding for programs and reparation schemes that address the health, psychosocial, educational, and other needs of Yazidi child survivors. And in this point, we're also calling on the national authorities um, they have a bill that's under discussion in the Iraqi parliament now um, that addresses the reparations for female Yazidi survivors of ISIS violations, but it actually doesn't even include children as beneficiaries of those reparations. So that's a major goal. Um, it would be to just include these children as, as victims of, of ISIS crimes um, in this national legislation. Second, we're calling on the national authorities and an international community to assist Yazidi women with children born of sexual violence to reunite with their children if that is their preference and to prevent any future separation of these women and children. And then finally, to prioritize and fast track Yazidi women and children born of sexual violence for resettlement or humanitarian location in third countries because they have no way to live in safety in Iraq. Um, and again, that is just for those women who wish to do so. So thank you so much and looking forward to questions. Thank you uh, very much, Nicolette. Um, so we have about 12, 13 minutes uh, left uh, for questions. There's a few coming in from the audience. 
Uh, one is from Alan Jeffrey, who's a friend of our institute, a former UN staff member uh, who worked in Iraq. And he says, aside from the UN's efforts, UNITAD, to assist Iraq in gathering of evidence in order to document the massacre of the Yazidi community, what member states of the international community, in addition to Germany, are helping strengthen this process, leading potentially to additional prosecutions? Does anyone, um, any one of our guests, know about this or would like to make a comment? If so, you'd have to make sure that you're not muted. Kyle, sorry, could you repeat the question? Says, aside from the UN effort, i.e. UNITAD, to assist Iraq in the gathering of evidence in order to document the massacre of the Yazidi community, what member states, um, it's on the bottom here, what member states of the international community in addition to Germany are helping to strengthen this process? Does anyone know besides Germany and helping the UN are taking up and, and showing leadership in this in this case? Um, I, I think I have mentioned some some um, efforts in France. So there's the Lafarge case, uh, there's the Sabri Essid case, uh, and also um, a few days ago another French uh, member was indicted for crimes against humanity genocide. The problem with, with these two cases, so the Sabri Essid and, and this new one, is that the ISIS members um, are missing. Um, they are believed to be dead, one of them at least, but under French law you can still prosecute them until you don't get the uh, clear evidence that they're really uh, deceased. Um, but besides Germany, which I think is really, really taking the lead, and also in terms of the, the amount of information they have gathered, I always advise war crime units uh, that get in touch with us to also speak to the German war crime units uh, to, to share information. But yeah, besides Germany, France, um, I think uh, we receive requests also from the Dutch war crime unit, and um, we also had requests from, from other war crime units. But there is, um, um, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty scattered. And um, I also wanted to mention the genocide network. It's, it's a collaboration of war, crimes, war crime units and, and prosecutors um, that are regularly meeting to share information. Uh, this is really the, 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 the example I have, but in terms of going to Iraq, gathering their evidence. Um, this is really UNITAD's job. And uh, I also wanted to mention that UNITAD um, is, is, is a great mechanism that gathers evidence, but UNITAD is, you know, is, is a half job done because what will happen after UNITAD, when, when UNITAD will have collected all that evidence, what will happen with that? Uh, I mean, in, in Iraq, for instance, it's not possible yet to prosecute ISIS members for crimes against humanity and, and genocide and war crimes. So these are things that states also need to address, in addition, of course, uh, strengthening their process of, of collecting uh, additional evidence. Thank you, Natia. I have another question here for Ahmed. Uh, Ahmed, someone is asking, what can Canada do to support your role as special um, envoy for religious freedom or belief and support the United Nations in protecting the Yazidis? Um, thank you. Um, I think um, in this particular instance, it will be vitally important um, to ensure that Canada uses its presence in the Human Rights Council and the UN, UN bodies to, throw, to shed light and more attention on the pressing need uh, to look at accountability issues um, in, uh, for, for, the, for, the, uh, for the crimes against Yazidis, and also to ensure that the Iraqi government strengthens its own protections with regard to uh, freedom of general belief uh, 
for Yazidis. We just heard from the Amnesty report that the ongoing practice of, of um, forcing um, children of unknown uh, fathers to be registered as, as, as Muslims in this case, a clear violation of four rights um, of, the, of the persons in question, especially uh, the, the, the mother. And so therefore being able to sort of shed more light on what uh, the Iraqi government is doing is crucial here. So I think uh, the key thing would be uh, to um, use the universal periodic review process, use the other of, of, of spaces in the, in the UN mechanism, such as the council and the General Assembly, to look at to, to, to look at these issues. And um, for my own own work, I haven't visited uh, Iraq yet. I haven't done a detailed study of the situation. But I think what is crucial here is that uh, we look at the uh, other mechanisms like myself, who can look at accountability issues with regard to the uh, crimes against Yazidis uh, in Iraq. Thank you, Ahmed. Um, Thank you. Uh, Nicolette, we have a question here that perhaps you will be able to answer. It might be directed towards you. Uh, Taima Jayush asks, is there any specific program by the United Nations for children who were born as a result of sexual violence? So that is a very, very good question. Um, and some organizations, I think, have been taking ad hoc measures, including the UN, um, to address this. But from our research, in no way is anybody, um, any organization in the international community or even the national authorities taking the necessary measures um, to address this situation and the proactive steps. And the reason um, that we believe proactive action is, is necessary, not just response, is because these women who have been forcibly separated from their children actually do not feel safe to speak out. Um, they're at risk um, even of sharing their feelings with their families, let alone their community. Um, so that was part of what we're hoping to do with our report is to give them a platform uh, to speak out safely. Um, but really, there are many women in this situation. Um, we uh, we know that from the from the women we interviewed, they talked about scores of other women they're in touch with. It's been confirmed by other humanitarian actors and journalists. Um, so this is a very um, important issue. Um, but so far, I think it's it's gone under the radar, and it's really been an issue where. Um, it's been more convenient for the national authorities and international community to look the other way. Um, but actually, um, these women feel that they're, they're at the last, um, their last, uh, um, uh, the, the end of their patience. Um, and I've never actually heard in all of my years as um, a human rights researcher, I've never heard the urgency that they were speaking about the situation um, and just pleading for the international community to act as, as quickly as, as, as it could. Thank you, Nicolette. Um, so Nicolette, I had a few people to ask, how can they get a link to this report? So if you can send that to us, we will post it on our Facebook page, share it on Twitter. Great. Um, and and um, so let other people and people in the Canadian government and the Canada's human rights community have a look. Um, we've we've hit exactly uh, twelve uh, one hour, so I know everyone's busy. So I'm going to stop the conversation here. I would like to just, on behalf of Migs and my colleagues, like to thank Yazda for reaching out to us and wanting to do a Canadian briefing on the sixth anniversary. I think it's extremely important. I'd like to thank Ahmed, Nicolette, Natia, and and Hala and Vian for joining us today. Um, you've got partners and supporters in Canada. Um, thank you for taking time and we really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your knowledge.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.